Uh, let's open our Bibles this morning, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Now, I am privileged to have many very, very, very old books in my office. Up on the shelves, some old books, mostly uh, come from my parents, my mom and dad, who are now in heaven. They used to go and they loved to go to old bookstores and they would find any books that was 100 years old or more. I have a medical book from the 1850s. <laughs> Some very interesting way to treat uh, different ailments, for sure. That's why they call it the practice of medicine, <laughs> for sure. They practiced. My most treasured uh, possession of all those old books, though, is a, uh, is a Bible from the War of the Rebellion, as it's written in the front. Uh, a Confederate soldier was given a Bible by his sister, and uh, the, it's written inside there, uh, 1850 something, and amazing. It's a it's a small little Bible, has a little leather strap on it. It's an amazing book. But I think the most remarkable book I've ever had the privilege of seeing there at the museum in Jerusalem is that of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls is perhaps the most startling of all archaeological discoveries of the 21st century. If you show those uh, picture of those caves there, in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd, a goat herder off the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, stumbled upon a cave of which now they've discovered 12 or more. There was a very uh, amazing group of scribes called the Essenes who would scribe and write and copy scriptures very meticulously. And this young man went into one of those caves and discovered a big vase, a tall vase with a top on it. In fact, the museum in Jerusalem's, the way that it looks is looks like the top of a vase. But there they found many fragments of Scripture, including the oldest known copy of the book of Isaiah. And it is 26 feet long. It's a book, but actually it is a scroll. And um, the way they they would write on these and then roll it up, that uh, is the most amazing uh, written book that I've ever seen in my life. Now, you can only imagine then what it must have been like for the Apostle John to be translated to heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he said he never knew, and there to see the opening of a book in heaven, a seven-sealed book. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You may have seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Well, this uh, message could be called The Lion, the Lamb, and the World. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. What an amazing book it is. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word, to listen to the beautiful music. Lord, I've been blessed by all the sweet fellowship. Now, Lord, give us your mind. And Lord, I pray that today we'll make the decisions you would have us to in the result of this day. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I'm going to borrow uh, an outline from the incredible... uh, scholar and author and great Baptist preacher, Warren Wiersbe, 
I love that it's simple, so I'll just give it to you this morning. First of all, I want you to notice in verses 1 through 5, the sealed book. Now, John had been uh, on earth, and now he has been translated to heaven. Chapter 4, verse 1. On earth, pandemonium breaks loose. But while he is in heaven, his mind is captured by this book, as the King James uh, says, but actually a literally a scroll in the hand, in the right hand of God. And so let's read verses 1 through 5 together. And if you don't have a King James, you can read on the PowerPoint here, but let's read it out loud together. Revelation 1 says there is a special blessing to reading and hearing the Word of God, the book of Revelation. So I think it'll be a blessing if we'll read it together. Ready? Begin. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Book. Actually, scroll. They would write on a portion of this uh, vellum, usually some sort of uh, animal hide at this point. Uh, later on, it would be papyrus, paper, but it was of the finest quality. They would write on it, then they would roll it up a little bit, put a seal there, uh, a wax seal with a special insignia. Then they would write on it some more. Then they would roll it up. It is a historical fact that a Roman will was always sealed with seven seals. Now, what is this book that was in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne? What is this scroll that so captured the attention of the Apostle John? Here's what I believe it is. I believe, and if you want to write this down, this would be a good thing to kind of get in your mind as we begin. It is the official document that is going to determine the outcome of human history. The official document to explain why and what is planned for all of creation. Others have called it a title deed. And it makes sense if it's seven seals, like the old Roman will, it is a title deed for all of creation, for the universe itself. Now you'd say, why do you believe that? And why do scholars, uh, why do um, conservative scholars believe that's exactly what it is? Well, there's at least one reason, and we go to the Old Testament for that. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 32, if you would please, and we're going to find out a little bit of understanding about the book of Revelation. Now you remind ourselves that the scripture is of no private interpretation. In order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to read the book of Genesis and vice versa. The Bible is a whole. It may have different books, but it's just one author. Now, in the book of uh, Jeremiah, we have this wonderful old 
prophecy written by a preacher, a prophet, an evangelist actually, who was very interested in prophecy. He prayed and asked God for a vision, and so God gave him a vision, as he used to do in the Old Testament, and he outlined for Jeremiah what was happening and what was about to happen for the nation Israel. He said to Jeremiah, your nation is going to be conquered by the Babylonians. The Middle East has always been quite a place for battles. Babylon, today known as Iraq, under a very strong, great world leader, old Nebuchadnezzar. And he said that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lead an exodus of your people, and they're going to go away and be taken to Babylon, and for 70 years they're going to be put in concentration camps. This is all a judgment because God's people had neglected the Lord, specifically they had neglected the Sabbath year. And that's why it's 70 years. God had a reason for what he was doing. And then he told Jeremiah, you are going to be, uh, uh, they're going to return. Now, because of that, here's what I want you to do. Kind of as a forecast and as an extreme uh, uh, act of real estate speculation, I want you to go buy land right now in Jerusalem. I want you to buy it because... We're coming back. And when you come back, it's going to be there for you. And Jeremiah was scratching his head. And of course, that's the setting for Jeremiah 33, 3, which we often quote ourselves about prayer, or God is able to do things far above we ask and think. But look at Jeremiah 32 in verse 9. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, his cousin, that was in Anathoth. And weighed him the money in seventeen shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. And so this was a legal document. Notice it says there was evidence. He wrote it down. And so it was a legal document, a title deed, that he owned this particular piece of property. That way there could be no um, tampering with what was going on. Verse number 12 now, we'll skip down. And I gave the evidence unto the purchase unto Baruch, my cousin, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And so what did he do? He took this title deed and he purchased uh, land, and then he had it in his hand. He made sure that it was registered legally, sealed up, a sealed up scroll, a title deed to a piece of land. Jeremiah 32 is very illustrative of what we see in the book of Revelation. It is a, a symbolism of this title deed, and that's really very clearly what Revelation chapter 5 is speaking of. Now, we know in Revelation 5 that our Lord and Savior has redeemed this world, and He paid a great price for our redemption. And so the book, the scroll that is in the hand of the one that's on the throne, represents the title deed to the earth, to the universe. What's God's plan? Well, it's written in the title deed, and seven seals will tell us about that. Now, who has the right to open that title deed? Only the one who owns it. 
only one who's paid the price, (laughs) and that is Jesus Christ. He paid the price on Calvary. He paid the greatest price for our freedom. Look at verse 2 now. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now, what is happening? He is asking the question, who has the title deed to this earth? Is there any human, is there any descendant of Adam who has the right? And so a search is undertaken here. And it says they looked, who is worthy to open this title deed? But nobody was worthy. Nobody was able to rescue and rule this world. They looked in government and found nobody there. They looked in the faith community and nobody was there. They looked in the business world and there was none there. Today the business world is a mecca for so many and it is supposedly supposed to do everything for us. They looked in education, but education didn't have one worthy. They looked in philosophy and the science the military, you name it, they looked all over the world, but they never found one who was worthy. This verse, this chapter is reminding us of the weakness of human civilization. There is nobody able to redeem themselves. That's why no religion can redeem us. That's why no, uh, uh, no prophet can redeem us. That's why no technology can redeem us. That's why no uh, philosophy can redeem us. Because it has to be somebody who has paid the price, someone who has the legal right. Now, I want you to notice the verse 2 again. Notice what it does not ask. It does not ask who is willing to open the book. It doesn't say who is willing. It says, who is worthy? Now, there may have been many willing in human history. Alexander the Great was perhaps the greatest world conqueror ever known. He was certainly willing to open the book of the title deed of the history of civilization. He may have been willing, but he was not worthy. Genghis Khan, amazing Asian conqueror, was certainly a great Uh, world leader, and he perhaps was willing, but he wasn't worthy. There are many uh, that have lived, and uh, Muhammad may have been willing, but he wasn't worthy. Buddha may have been willing, but he wasn't worthy. Yes, Moses, the great Moses, the wonderful character of the Old Testament, perhaps the most eminent of all Old Testament characters. He was an incredible man, and yet he was not worthy. Abraham, the father of the Jews, but he was not worthy. And here the great apostle John said, nobody is worthy. Nobody worthy to bring order to this current world. Because of that, it says, notice what it says in verse number four. It says, John wept. John wept. Is there anybody who can open this title deed? Is there anybody who has the right, who, has, who is worthy Nobody was worthy, and so he wept. What are we going to do? Who's going to bring peace? Who's going to bring order? Who's going to bring good to this world? And so John wept. Actually, the Greek there is that he sobbed openly. John knew that this world needed a leader. John knew that this world needed redeeming. And I'm so grateful for all that's going on and uh, that they're trying to do to make our country better. And I know many people from both sides of the aisle are trying 
But folks, the matter is, no matter what anybody does, no matter what legislation or who gets in office, the fact is nobody is able to set this world in order like Jesus can. He is the only one worthy. John is weeping openly, and he's knowing that if this doesn't happen, then everything that we have invested in is for nothing. And he said, I've been exiled to this devil's island, the Isle of Patmos, for nothing. If nobody can open this book, sin has won. If nobody can open this book, we're lost, and we're lost forever. History records a young Roman who was condemned for his, uh, to death for his high crimes of treason. At the end of the trial, an older brother stepped forward, an older brother who had lost both arms in fighting for Rome. Holding out his stumps, he pled for his father's life. And he confessed his brother's guilt but, and said he wasn't worthy. He wasn't worthy of pardon, but asked if by some way he would pardon his brother because of his sacrifice. The judge, the court looked at this brother holding forth these stumps who he had paid with his life literally for his country and they pardoned his younger brother. Why? Because of his brother's worthiness. And here we find someone who, can, who is worthy to open this title deed for us, this title deed to the earth. Well, the elder then wipes the tears of John in verse number five. And one of the elders wipes his tears, says, don't weep because a lion is here. There is someone who has the, uh, the right, uh, the royal Right as a lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David. And here the elder refers back to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, Christ is spoken of as a, a, a lion from the tribe of Judah. David's line, the Davidic line, which is the royal line, goes back to Judah, which is the royal line. And what he's saying is, is that there is someone who comes from Judah there is someone who would also come from David. There is someone who has the right, the legal right. He is the lion. He is the king of the beasts. He has a right to open the book. Remember now, the book of Revelation has so many symbols. That's why it says in the book of Revelation chapter 1, it says, God signified or signed these things. It's a book of signs. Some are explained, others are not. Others take a little bit of uh, comparative as we see here. Christ is worthy. Who is worthy? Christ is worthy. No man on earth, no woman on earth, but Christ is worthy. Why? Because he is a lion. And notice what it says, he has prevailed. Look at verse 5. He has prevailed. That actually means he's overcome. He has won the victory. I love that old gospel song, I think, by the Crab family. The lamb came forth as a lion. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus never opened his mouth. From the trial to the crucifixion and to the grave, he was laid out. After three days in the garden tomb, I can hear the angels sing. As the lion came, or excuse me, as the lamb came forth as the lion, and that day the lion became a king. Ah, oh, but that day is soon approaching that every eye shall see the lamb, and the lion of Judah has been crowned 
king of kings. You won't find him again at the whipping post, standing there so meek, and he won't be nailed to a rugged cross through his hands and through his feet, because the lion, or the lamb becomes a lion. And that's what this is all about. Who is worthy? There is one who is the lion of God. And so with this vision in his mind, John has seized this book, and he's excited because one is worthy, it is a lion. Now, the sealed book, number two, the slain lamb, verses 6 through 10. Now, let's read verses 6 through 10, as we did just a moment ago. Ready, begin. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou hast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And so John, with his mind, the vision of a ferocious lion, turns and sees not a lion, but he sees a lamb. And actually, the original language there doesn't really even give that term enough justice because lamb, actually, it is a pet lamb. That's actually the term. It is a, an endeared lamb, one who is close to the owner. There, a little tender pet lamb. Oh, wait, wait a second. How can a little tender pet lamb with no defenses, with no claws, no teeth, no ability to grab things, just a little lamb. How could a lamb be worthy to beat a ferocious dragon? Satan is depicted in Scripture as a dragon. And yet God's plan to set aright the entrenched evil is a little pet lamb? Oh, but this is not just any lamb. Look at how this lamb is described. First of all, it says it is a lamb that has been slain. Look at verse 6. It has been slain. Past tense, but it's not slain anymore. And actually that word slain really doesn't even give that word justice. It actually means the throat has been slit. It has been sacrificed. It is a sacrificed lamb. Of course, this is speaking of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, but then who had been slain, but is now alive. Notice on this lamb's head are seven horns. In biblical typology, a horn is a symbol of power. Many times in scripture that talks about thou hast anointed my uh, head and my, uh, with a horn. And there's many times where God talks about the horn of power. This is a horn, or excuse me, this is a lamb, but it has seven horns. Seven, the number for complete, the number for uh, per perfection. 
complete power, all power. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus said, all power has been given unto me, complete power. Seven horns of power has been given to me. I might have a a little bit of power, but Jesus has all power. And then notice, not only does it have seven, the lamb have seven horns, but the lamb has seven eyes. You'd say a lamb with seven eyes? What in the world is that talking about? Well, seven again, complete or perfection. And then eyes, eyes that see. It's talking about wisdom. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the lamb, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now notice where this lamb is found. In these verses, it says he's found right in the middle of everything, right in the throne. Now why hasn't John seen this lamb before? He'd been in the throne room. Remember back in chapter 4, this throne room with an emerald rainbow? Remember all the creatures around? Remember all that's going on? It, he had, Christ had been there all the time. But maybe, perhaps, some suggest, I think it very well could be true, the reason that John couldn't see Jesus, because he was so taken back by the beauty. He'd seen the diamond foundation he had seen the, seen the blood, ruby red uh, emeralds that were there. He saw the, all the elders. He, saw, he heard the singing and the praising. And he failed to see Jesus. He had been in this throne room for all that time. And this was the first time he had seen the Lamb. And my friend, I think that's exactly what so often happens to us. We get so busy looking at this and that, we forget to see Jesus. We forget to see the fact that Jesus is the one we ought to be focusing on. And we get so busy thinking about 666 or who's the Antichrist or what's going to happen when the monetary system collapses and all that, we forget to remember we should be looking for Jesus, watching for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll, be, we'll forget Jesus, we'll miss Jesus. Now, who is worthy? Well, Jesus is the only one worthy. Look at verse 6, or excuse me, verse 9. It says, He was worthy because He was slain. He was worthy because He was slain. Have you ever thought about how many times in Scripture it talks about blood? I mean, the Old Testament talks about it so much. The New Testament, again, talks about it so much. Jesus, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. We talk about it often in Scripture, and so should we. For all these years, people have been praying for the return of Christ. And notice what it says finally, verse number 10, it says, He reigns. He reigns. And so Paul, or here John realizes, yes, He is slain, but He is reigning now. Verse number 10, He reigns on earth. Yes, He was slain, but now He reigns. Michael Angelo famed Italian sculptor and artist, considered the greatest of his era, perhaps the greatest artist of all time. It was said that one time he grew frustrated with his fellow artists who were working with him because they seemed to always be just so focused. And in that era, back in the 1500s, they were so focused always on the death of Christ and uh, the, uh, all that he did. And here he said, look, and he, he hollered out, he said, he reigns. He reigns. <laughs> 
Don't always be just seeing him on the cross. Remember, he reigns. He is a, he is a lamb that was slain. Seven eyes, he's all-knowing. Seven horns, he's all-powerful. He was slain. What is the, who is worthy to open this seven-sealed scroll? One who has been slain. One who was sacrificed. One who paid the debt. Who legally has the right. The sealed book. The slain lamb. And now finally, the shouting hosts. Verses 11 through 14. All right? Let's read verses 11 through 14 together. Ready? Begin. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And, excuse me, verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever. Oh my goodness, what a glorious, amazing worship time. Man, we had a glorious time here this morning. Beautiful music, beautiful specials, and we sang. I love that great hymn that we sang a few moments ago. But notice the worship of all of these creatures in heaven. Now, the Bible says all of creation is going to be giving him praise. Now, I'm sure that, the, and we don't see anywhere that angels sing, but uh, God's people sing, but the Bible says the angels are shouting and they're proclaiming, but I'm convinced that not only are the angels uh, shouting and not only are the four and 20 elders representing the 12 uh, tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, basically every saved person, every saved person. The Bible says ev- out of every nation, every dialect that there's ever been is going to have somebody get saved. How that happens, I have no idea, but we'll even talk about that tonight in the book of Acts chapter 10, how that God will find his Cornelius. He'll get the gospel to him somehow. And notice what it says. It says, all of creation I'm even convinced that even the rocks will cry out and even the heavens will cry out, please come, come and open the book and come and judge this world and bring peace to this world. Who are they all worshiping? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, the liberals tell us that Jesus was a good man. In fact, perhaps a great man. Religionists tell us that Jesus was a great prophet, but certainly not God. But in heaven, everyone worships Jesus as God. Because heaven understands correctly, Jesus is God. There are some people today who don't like for us to preach the deity of Christ. There are some today who don't like us to preach about the blood of Christ and about the exclusiveness of Christ to get to heaven. They say it's divisive. They call it intolerant. But I will tell you that it is 
the way to heaven. Billy Graham, when he first started, who now is in heaven, but when he first started his ministry many years ago, said that a college professor came to him and said, young man, you are a very good speaker. But, they, but he said, if you will leave out all that talk about the blood of Jesus and all that talk about all that kind of stuff, you'll really go places. Billy Graham said, I determined right there and then I was going to preach more about Jesus and the blood of Christ than I ever had before. And I will tell you the same thing this morning. And you can't be a biblicist. You can't be a literalist without loving the sacrifice and being grateful for the sacrifice of Christ. He is the lamb that was slain, but he is a powerful lamb. He is the one who is the lion of Judah who is going to take care of the old devil. I love this church. I do. I love this church. I love these people. You're an amazing group. And we sing songs and choruses and one of our favorite songs around here is Victory in Jesus. One of the oldest, most beautiful old songs. And here's how it goes. I heard an old, old story. How a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. He bought me with His redeeming blood. Folks, we have a blood-soaked Savior. We have a Lamb who is our Savior. There's only one who's able to open the title deed for the earth. There's only one who's able to open the title deed for all of the universe. They're talking about sending spaceships to Mars, to Jupiter. They're talking about telescopes now that have discovered new planets and everything else. Like there's somebody, like there's something so special. The fact is, folks, God has a plan for this whole universe, for every universe. And it is Jesus Christ has been slain from the foundation of the earth. He is the only one who has the right to open up this title deed. And this title deed, what's going to happen to this earth? Well, look what it says in verse 13. Every creature, every creature which is in heaven, heaven above, and on earth, here on earth, and in hell below, and under the earth. And such as are in the sea, they're all going to say blessing and honor and glory and power. You'd say, now, so everybody in heaven's going to give him praise? Well, of course. You'd say everybody on earth is going to give him praise? Amen. But notice this verse even says that everybody in hell below will actually praise him. Now, they're not going to praise him as Savior. They're just going to praise him as Lord. And we know that the scripture teaches that. Romans chapter 14, verse 11, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God that I am Lord. Can you imagine then all of creation singing, all of the Old Testament saints, all of the New Testament saints, all of these angels shouting, and it says all of creation, hell below, the earth, so everything on earth, every tree is going to shout. Every rock is going to shout forth. There's noise in all of this. There's noise in the trees. There's noise in the rocks. And scientists can hear those things. Every fish in the sea, every bird in the sky. The Bible says everything at one moment is going to begin to praise the Lord. I've been in an auditorium where they had 5,000 men, mostly men, almost all men, 5,000 Christian men all singing to the Lord. I will tell you, it is almost deafening. 
it's incredible. It is exciting. And it's all that beautiful tenor and bass sound, and it's just amazing. But tell you one thing, folks, imagine when billions and billions of people are singing, when the earth itself is singing, the rocks are crying out, and the birds and the fish, and even hell below is, the Bible says, worthy is the Lamb, power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. Amazing. This Lamb dishonored on earth but honored in heaven. A curse on a cross, but the bestower of every blessing. People today yell and scream and riot and say, we want justice. (laughs) We want justice. Thousands of people try to storm the walls and and the fences of America, say, we want justice. And Every city in America, people are in turmoil, say, we want justice. Well, I will tell you one thing this morning, friend, righteous judgment is coming. And you want justice? It's coming. I promise you, every person who's standing there rioting, they say, we want justice. We say to you, I'm sure your situation may have some merit, but I, you need to know this, justice is coming. You will get justice. I promise you, you'll get justice. Everybody gets justice. How does it come? It comes through a lion. It comes through a lamb. It comes through one who is worthy. Now, this morning, the question is, if you believe that he is worthy, if you believe that he's worthy, is he worthy of everything? How many believe that Jesus is worthy this morning? Would you just lift your hand? You believe he's worthy? Amen. I believe that. Is he worthy of your love this morning? Of course he is. Is he worthy of your tithe, a dime out of every dollar? Is he worthy of your Sundays? Is he worthy of the time that it takes to read your Bible? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of our efforts? Did you know that the word uh, worship actually is the word worth-ship? It's actually what it means. It means worship. It means he's worthy of my praise. Worship is worship. If I believe he's worthy, then I ought to give him my all. And that's what this book is about. It is about the the lion. It's about the lamb, and it's about the world. It's about one who has the right to open this title deed, the, the, the one deed that is going to declare true justice. And next week, we're going to begin to see as seal after seal, after seal, this big long scroll is opened and God is going to pronounce judgment. One of my favorite stories, originally documented in 1898, it has been since repeated by many a preacher. Perhaps you've heard it before. The story is about a painting. The painting is known as the chess players. We have a picture of it here. The Chess Players by Moritz Rett. On a tour of Europe, an international chess master, Paul Morphy, and a friend entered into an art gallery. In this art gallery was this very famous picture from the late 1800s, the Chess Players. Mr. Morphy and his friend were walking around this art gallery when he spotted this painting being an internationally known chess master, obviously he was drawn to this particular painting. 
He stood there and looked at the painting. Now, the artist, who obviously knew a lot about chess, painted the one person with moves in such a way that no matter how he moved, he was going to be checkmated. If he moved this way or that way, no matter what piece he moved, he would lose the match. Across from him sat the other man with a fiendish look on his face, pointy ears. This is the devil. This young man is playing chess with the devil. The artist, of course, was trying to point out the fact, don't play with the devil. You were going to lose. That was the artist's picture. This chess master, Mr. Morphy, however, stood there looking at this picture. His friend grew tired of just staring at the picture and walked on. But Mr. Morphy, international chess master, stared at the painting. He stared and he stared. And then finally, he said, I've got it. He ran to his friend, went to the art gallery, found him, and he said, this young man has one more move. He has one move he can make. Not only will he get out of trouble, but he can win. <laughs> I thought about that story seen the picture several times over my life. Now, I don't know a lot about chess. I know a little bit, but I don't know a lot. But I can tell you one thing. I know a lot about the Bible. And what the Bible does say is that even though the devil has us just about checkmated, and when you look at the world around us, it looks like it's a checkmate, doesn't it? I mean, this world is absolutely spinning out of control, and yet we've got to move. And that move is to give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the move. And when we give Him our lives, and when we say to Jesus, Thou art worthy, then we not only get out of trouble, we win. We win the match. It comes through Jesus Christ. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Every year I live more and more, I'm so grateful to my Lord. If I had a thousand lives to live again, I would live every one of them. For Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is worthy. Thou art worthy. Would you bow your heads?